We've been very fortunate in the last couple of weeks to have Terry Faw uh, leading us so well through Scripture, and we're looking forward to him leading us this third and, and final time today. And uh, on behalf of our community, Terry, just a, a heartfelt thank you for leading us so well and helping us transition into this uh, period of sabbatical for, uh, for Pastor Stewart. Uh, this morning, our Scripture reading comes from John chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. Hear now the word of the Lord. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean? exclaimed Nicodemus. How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. How are these things possible? Nicodemus asked. Jesus replied, You are a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things? I assure you, we tell you what we know and have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. This is the word of the Lord. Terry, come. Good morning. I'm going to start with a confession. When I was a pastor of uh, my own church and the May long weekend came, I prayed for snow. <laughs> That's a terrible thing to admit. I thought of all the people in my church going camping. Please, please don't, don't tell Steve that, Steve Fillmore. <laughs> He's a friend of mine. I didn't pray this weekend, but it snowed, so... <clears throat> A mystic, an evangelical pastor, and a fundamentalist preacher die on the same day and wake up to find themselves by the pearly gates of heaven. And upon reaching the gates, they are promptly greeted by Peter, the Apostle Peter, who informs them that before they can enter heaven, they must be interviewed by Jesus himself about the correctness of their beliefs about God. And the first to be interviewed is the mystic, who is quietly ushered into a room. Five hours later, the mystic reappears with a smile. 
saying, I thought I had got it all wrong. And then Peter signals to the evangelical pastor who stands up and enters the room, and after a full day has passed, the pastor reappears with a troubled look on his face and says to himself, how could I have been so foolish? Finally, Peter asks the fundamentalist to follow him. The fundamentalist picks up his well-worn Bible and walks into the room. A few days pass with no sign of the preacher. Then finally, the door swings open and Jesus himself appears, exclaiming, how could I have got it all so wrong? (laughs) Now, I don't normally tell those kind of canned jokes on a Sunday in a sermon, but that is a very good joke to tell on this Sunday, on the Sunday we call Trinity Sunday. Trinity is the uniquely Christian name for God. And what we learn in the joke, and and you know what they say about jokes, there's a bit of truth in every joke. And what we learn in this joke is that there are at least two different ways of approaching what we believe about God. The first way is represented by the mystic, who, although he is committed to a particular tradition, acknowledges that his tradition does fall short of fully grasping the essence of God. Now, that approach doesn't deny that we can belong to a church, be part of a tradition, but it acknowledges that the relationship we have with God can never be reduced to our understanding or our ability to explain it. And then the second way of approaching beliefs about God that this joke relates to us is captured in a weak way by the evangelical pastor and a stronger way by the fundamentalist. And it suggests an approach to believing things about God in which our ideas and our concepts provide a representation of what God is like, a meaningful representation of who God is and how we experience God. Now, sometimes we come by our ideas about God quite innocently. We may have learned our ideas or our concept of who God is and what he's like by our upbringing or by our church tradition. And many of these default ways of thinking about God are kind of default beliefs. Beliefs we haven't given much thought to, we just have them. But life happens. And some of those unquestioned beliefs about God can be open to revision. Some of our experiences, often hard experiences like suffering, discouragement, loss, failure, experiences of a season of doubting. Some of those experiences can lead us to reconsider and revise some of our ideas about God. Maybe that's happened to you. That's happened to me. Let me give you an example. Shusako Endo, a Japanese novelist and also a devout Christian who died in 1996, wrote his novels from the perspective of being Japanese and a devout Christian. And after World War II, uh, in which he lived in Japan, he left for the West, where he thought of as his spiritual homeland. And he went to France to study. 
And during the time he was in France, he became depressed. He contracted tuberculosis. He had a lung removed, and he spent months recovering in a hospital. And believing that Christianity had led to his illness, he underwent a crisis of faith. But before going back home to Japan, he traveled to Palestine to study the life of Jesus. And this trip transformed the way he thought about God. He came to the idea that Christ, too, had experienced rejection. And his writing, Endo's writing, captures uh, the theme of God's identification with the foreigner, with the marginalized person, with the stigmatized person in society. By the way, Martin Scorsese, the film director, is going to be making a film very soon about Endo's novel called Silence. I'm not sure it's a good idea that Scorsese makes the film, <laughs> but he's going to make one. Uh, it's about mis Christian missionaries in Japan in the 17th century. Anyway, in a similar way, our experience of God himself can change the way we think and believe about God. Do you remember last week we mentioned that the Holy Spirit came over Peter and changed Peter's mind about what God was doing in the world? Peter had a dream, and he had this very powerful encounter with God-fearing non-Jewish people who at that time were thought to be outside of God's plan. But after that experience, Peter's beliefs about God changed. So our ideas about God do sometimes change. But, but like the fundamentalist preacher in the joke, not always the case. <clears throat> A person can cling in the face of any fact or experience. They can cling to their interpretation of God. Their, their experience, no matter how confusing, how confounding, is always explained to fit in to the conception of God. Protecting and preserving that conception of God is more important than anything else. Well, you might think I'm getting way more mileage out of a joke than is theologically possible. A person um, might say that, um, you know, we definitely do need our images and concepts of God, and I agree with that, but not to the point that we worship those concepts. The early Christians were actually aware of this very danger. Gregory of Nyssa is one of the great Christian writers of the third century. Listen to what he says. Concepts create idols. Only wonder understands. Concepts create idols. Only wonder understands. Now, Gregory of Nyssa, who is considered one of the great so-called fathers of the Christian church, he's not saying that we can do without concepts or language to talk about God. But what he's warning us about is that these concepts can become prisons if, we, if they prevent us from being free to really know and experience God. That's all he's saying. So you can see that there is a mystical tradition in the Christian faith that's been around for a very long time. And when I say that word mystical, you might be thinking, what? Mysticism, mystical. You might not think of that as a word that would describe your own spiritual 
uh, experience. But mysticism really simply means just this, experiential knowledge of spiritual things. Mysticism is experiential knowledge of spiritual things. And so when Nicodemus, in the story that Joel read for us this morning, when Nicodemus the Pharisee comes to Jesus under the cover of darkness to ask him how he, Nicodemus, can receive the kingdom of God, Jesus tells this religious expert that in spite of everything he knows about God, he'll have to loosen his grip on all of that. He'll have to let that go and experience experience a rebirth by the Holy Spirit. Now, does that not sound a bit mystical to you? I want to come back in a moment to this story of Jesus and Nicodemus, but let's note first that Jesus is a mystic. <laughs> Jesus is a mystic. He's a mystic because he knows God firsthand by experience, by relationship, by grace, by spirit. It's interesting that um, the Bible makes no attempt to come up with a systematic concept of God. Did you know that? The Bible doesn't try and come up with a definitive concept of God. God is given names. God is given metaphors and analogies. He's mainly described by the way we experience him, not by abstract concepts. We're presented with a God who's a warrior and a God who's a peacemaker, an unchanging God and a God who can, can be convinced to repent and change his mind. We're presented with a God of peace and a God of war. God is like a rock. God is like a wind. God is like a female bear. God is like a mother hen. God has a womb. God goes into labor. God is like a midwife. There are many feminine images for God. So what about Trinity? Oh, that's very different, isn't it? It sounds pretty abstract, doesn't it? But you know, the Trinity is not a word that you'll find in the Bible. Yet there are many places where Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are mentioned together in a way that hints. It's kind of a rumor of Trinity. For example, let me share some words of Scripture with you. This first one from the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans. See if you can hear one, two, three. Jesus, Spirit, Father. Paul writes, For all who are led by the Spirit of God as children are children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you've received God's Spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. 
And remember the farewell speech of Jesus a couple weeks ago in the last part of John's gospel? Jesus says to his disciples just before he goes to be crucified, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. And then there's our story today, the midnight meeting of Nicodemus with Nicodemus, the religious scholar and expert who meets with Jesus the mystic. Why do you think he's meeting Jesus at night? Mystics are sort of, you know, they're a bit off. They're a bit odd. Uh, Nicodemus represents the mainstream. And he's a little nervous about meeting someone who's a little, you know, mystical. So he meets him at midnight. This story is considered historically by the Christian church to be a Trinity story. It's a traditional reading for this Sunday and has been for hundreds of years. So Nicodemus has come desperate to find out something about God, something that has eluded him, even though he's an expert. He's at the top of the knowledge table for knowing about God in his culture and his religion, the same religion as Jesus. And so he says to Jesus, under cover of darkness, he says, Teacher, we know that you are a teacher who's come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. To me, that's the key line in the story. Well, it's one of the key lines, but it's a very important line. Nicodemus is after something he realizes that Jesus has. But he, a religious expert, knows he hasn't got it. (laughs) He doesn't have it. And Jesus is a teacher like no other because Nicodemus sees he's got this intimacy with God. He has a relationship with God that Nicodemus wants to have for himself. I like Nicodemus. I don't know if you've ever read this story and thought, Nicodemus, bad. Bad example. Let's not be like Nicodemus. I say, let's be more like Nicodemus. He's, he, he's so attuned to God, he knows he hasn't got all of God. And he looks at Jesus and he says, there's more. I'm going to go talk to Jesus. What is it? Um, Jesus makes an attempt to tell Nicodemus what he's missing. And when Nicodemus says, I don't get it, Jesus uses an image to explain himself. An image that is an absolutely shocking image. We've probably read this story so many times we don't realize what it would have sounded like to Nicodemus. But Jesus says to know God is to experience God. It's akin to the experience of entering human life through the birth canal. Spiritually speaking, says Jesus, you have to be born again. (laughs) Born from above. But if you look at that story, it's almost like they're talking two different languages. Uh, Nicodemus is so puzzled. It's like Jesus is using a code for talking about the spiritual life. Jesus plunges him into a mystery 
that words and concepts can't capture. And then in the same breath, Jesus likens God's spirit to the wind. Nicodemus, how can you capture and control something that you can't tell where it's going or where it comes from? And Nicodemus is just confounded. He's, he's completely incredulous. How can these things be, he asks. And Jesus can't resist the opportunity for a bit of a dig. He says, Nicodemus, you're one of Israel's best and brightest experts on God, and you don't understand what I'm talking about? Concepts create idols. Only wonder understands. Could it be that Nicodemus is a prisoner to his concept of God? Jesus is inviting him to let go of that, to set aside what he's learned and and believed so that he can open himself to God's very spirit, to an intimacy with God himself. The scriptures hinting at Trinity tell us something about who God is and what it means to know God. Both Jesus and Paul speak of a God who is loving, intimate, and personal. Paul writes that we're God's children, that we experience God as a father, like our fathers, just as Jesus could. And the experience is one of deepest intimacy. Abba, Father, Daddy, Papa. Trinity offers a picture of God whose very essence is relational and loving. God is many things. But on this view, God is love. Love is God's very essence. It's who he is. And we were made for relationship with this God who is love. In the very opening words of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, we read these words. God was determined to make humankind in our image. That's what it says. Not my image or his image, but our image image. There was something in the very beginning that hinted at God's own being as a community of divine persons. But there's also a clue here for what it means to be most fully human. To be made in God's image is to be made for relationship. We are made for love. To be a fully human person isn't to be an individual but to be in community with God and with others. To be a holy person is to image God in our relationships of love, our relationship with God, our relationship with other people, our relationship with the creation, our relationship with ourselves. That's what John Wesley meant when he said, there is no holiness but social holiness. God is love. We were made to image that love in our own lives and image it in our relationships. Um, You may be feeling a little bit like Nicodemus this morning. You know a lot of things about God. You Maybe you've questioned some of them or never have. Uh, You're doing a pretty good job of towing the line and doing things right. But you'd like to feel the refreshing wind of God in your soul again, maybe for the first time, or maybe again. I want to make a few suggestions this morning for how that might be able to happen for us. First of all, this. 
realize that God knows how hard it is to love well. God knows how hard it is to live into this image as relational people, to image God's love in our loving relationships with each other. We all know that too, but God knows it. The story of Adam and Eve is actually the story of love broken down. When relationship with God breaks down in the garden, so do all those other loving relationships become a struggle between Adam and Eve. With the garden, there's creation. Adam and Eve are ashamed of themselves. Love breaks down, and God knows how hard those loving relationships are. So if you are struggling to love, to image God in your relationships, remember that God gave us a reminder of what love looks like. Jesus is the image of a loving God. Jesus is the image of God who is love. God so loved the world, which doesn't mean that God loved the world so, so much. It means God loved the world in this fashion. He gave Jesus to show us what love looks like. God so loved the world, he gave us his son, not to condemn it, but to show us that God is love and we're never far away from that love. And secondly, if you are feeling a bit like Nicodemus today and you'd like a fresh wind of the spirit of Trinity, do you remember William Young's novel, The Shack? Do you remember that book? Did anyone read that book? Many people did. It was published in 1999. It was controversial because it offered a very different language, a different set of images for thinking about God. Remember Mac? Mac was the protagonist, the main character. He lost a daughter to a horrible crime. And Mac returns to that cabin where the, he lost his daughter and encounters, well, I'm going to cut to the chase. I don't want to spoil the story. But he encounters Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But like you have not heard before, God the Father appears as an African-American woman who asks Mac to call him Papa. And the son is a 30-year-old carpenter. And the Holy Spirit in the story is an Asian lady named Sarayu. Although the book had its critics, I actually appreciated the way it opened up for many people a way to see and think and experience God as love. Listen to what Young said in an interview in the Globe and Mail. He said, The shack has given to people a language to have a conversation about God, a language they didn't have before, because all the language before had been very religious. <laughs> you see, language can be an idol. Only wonder understands. Language can be a prison. If... You've missed those book sales down at the CBC. There's still plenty of copies of The Shack to be found. And finally, here's my final Trinity Sunday suggestion for receiving the love of Trinity and experiencing the wonder of God's love. In a few moments, we're going to come and share this meal, the bread and the cup, together. 
There is a, a Catholic theologian by the name of Karl Rahner who has been quoted by everyone in every tradition all through the 20th century. And here's the quote. The devout Christian of the future will either be a mystic, one who has experienced something, or he or she will cease to be anything at all. There's a reason lots of people quote that quotation. In the, the, the believer of the future will either be a mystic or he or she will cease to exist at all. Communion is an invitation for us to become mystics, to let go of pretension, to enter freely into the loving communion of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus prayed that we would do that when he prayed for us. I was at my daughter's university graduation uh, this past week. There were several very mediocre speeches, one really bad speech, and one really brilliant speech. And the brilliant speech was given by the valedictorian, one of the ACAD students. And the student said, we are artists. Beware the artists. We are artists, and our job is to show people the truth is to go into every part of society and hold up our art to say, this is real, this is true. Whether you like it or not, this is beautiful and this is ugly, but this is the truth. And he said, beware the artists. I love that. And I thought this week as I was reading this story, beware the mystics. Beware the mystics who know and experience the love of God, who have come to wonder at God's own love because they've entered into the experience of love, of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, if we could do that, and this is why he prayed for it, the world will know, the world will know that God sent me. Thanks be to God. May we pray. God, our Father, you made us. You made us in your image. And you love us. And you invite us to be in community with you. That is a, an amazing and wonderful thing. Jesus, you prayed for us. You rescued us. You made us holy. And you enabled us to be in community. Holy Spirit, you inspired the words of Scripture you guide us in our listening and our learning and our attempts to understand and in our attempts to love each other. And you transform us by your power and your presence to be a loving community. Triune God, thank you for your love. May it draw us ever closer to you that we may grow in our love for you, for one another, and for the whole creation. We pray in the name of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.